0: Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new con gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
2: And welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We're beyond excited to announce that the second The Ship No One Tells You About Writing Virtual Retreat will be run on September 24th and 25th from 9.30am to 5.30pm Eastern Time. We have 18 hours of jam-packed, amazing content lined up for you, featuring writers, coaches and editors at the top of their game. Now here are the 13 speakers we have lined up. Jesse Q. Setanto, who is the author of Dial A for Aunties. Jill Santopolo, who is an author and an editor, whose book was chosen for the Reese Witherspoon book club pick. We have Mark Tavani, who's vice president and executive editor at GP Putnam Sons. We have Lee Stein, who is an author, cultural critic and book development expert. Alka Joshi, who has written The Henna Artist, which was also a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. We have Claire McIntosh, who's the multi-award winning author of I Let You Go and numerous other books as well. We have Jane Green, who really needs no introduction. Matt Bell, who wrote How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, who's also the author of the novel Appleseed. We have Elizabeth Gassman, who was an assistant editor for Little Brown and who is now an independent editor. We have Uzma Jaladuddin, who also needs no introduction on this podcast. Laurie Grassi, who's a freelance book editor and former senior editor at Simon & Schuster Canada. Andrea Bartz, who's Latest book, We Were Never Here, was also a Reese's Book Club pick, and Courtney Mom, who again needs no introduction on the podcast, but who wrote before and after the book deal. So bookings are now open. Please go to The Shit About Writing, look at the virtual retreat page, and claim your spot. Today's guest is an award-winning Canadian journalist who's worked as an editor for Refinery 29, The Globe and Mail, Chatelaine, and Toronto Life. She lives in Toronto with her husband and two sons. Every Summer After is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Carly Fortune. Carly, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me. As you know, I'm a huge fan, so this is such a thrill.
2: Such a thrill on my side to speak to you. I absolutely loved every summer after I raced through it. There was just so much in it to love and to unpack, which I want to chat to you about today. So firstly, when I arrived in Canada sort of 10 years ago, I did not know that cottages were such a big part of Canadian culture. Now for our listeners everywhere else, I suspect that there are places in the US as well where having a summer cottage is a big thing, but like this was not a thing in South Africa and then we got to Canada, and everyone was gone for the summer, and they were like, we're going to our cottage. And of course, that created a lot of envy. But you realize that for kids growing up in these cottages, spending their summer surrounded by other families who go there repeatedly, it's an amazing way to grow up and to Be with the same people every summer long, and then you go back to your normal life, and then you go back to the cottage again. So, Carly, can you tell us a bit about your experience in Barry's Bay growing up at that cottage and how it informed this novel?
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for those kind words. So, when I was born in Toronto, and my family had a very small cottage on a lake in Barry's Bay. And we actually left Canada for my early childhood, moved to Australia. And when we came back, my parents decided they didn't want to live in the city. They wanted to make a year-round home in Barry's Bay. And so I grew up down a dirt road in the bush on a lake and I was the year-round resident. So people, cottagers were coming and going from my life every summer. And Barry's Bay is a very beautiful place. It's a, Very small town 1200 people so it's quite sleepy most of the year but in the summer it explodes with tourists from all over the world who are coming to Algonquin Park which is nearby and then cottagers who are coming from the city and so I grew up like in that small town but the pull of the lake and my parents sold that house along about 10 years ago the pull of the lake as something that I feel very strongly living in Toronto now. And I was very fortunate in the summer of 2020 to be able to squat at a friend's cottage in the area. He was American, so he couldn't cross the border. So my family and I spent the summer back on a lake and I was feeling very nostalgic, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book.
2: Yeah, there's lovely, lovely nostalgia in it. I'm going to chat to you about the process of writing it and getting an agent, etc. But as well, were you ever tempted to not base it in Canada? Because as Canadian writers, we keep getting told, oh, Americans don't want to read Canadian books, etc." And I suppose you could have come up with a, a lake town somewhere in the US, or were you 100% committed to saying this is a Canadian book and this is how it's going to stay?
3: No, I was not committed to that at all, because I I didn't write with the intention of being published at the beginning. But once it became clear that there was interest in the book, I'm somebody with a media background and a digital media background, and finding audience is very important to me as a journalist, as a an author. And so when I was speaking with agents and editors, I asked them, do you think the fact that this is based in Canada is should I set it in kind of nowheresville, I wouldn't have felt comfortable setting it somewhere specific in the States. Somebody had suggested to me setting it in the Adirondacks, and I absolutely wouldn't have been comfortable with that. But I would definitely have been open to making it Barry's Bay, not necessarily Canada. But I think in hindsight, I'm so glad that both my agent who is based in LA, and my editor, who's based in New York, were happy to have it set in Canada, because I think the setting is very special in the book. And a lot of people have in Canada, but also outside of Canada have really responded to the setting. I had heard various responses from people about whether or not a Canadian setting would work, but I'm so happy it worked out the way it did.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure your Canadian editor, Nicole Winstanley stanley and Bonnie Maitland, who's in sales there. Hi, Nicole and Bonnie. I'm sure they were over the moon to have such a particular Canadian setting. Certainly helps sales here in Canada. You started writing this in 2020 and it's the summer of 2022 and the book's out. That moves very quickly in publishing. We're always telling our listeners that publishing moves at a glacial pace. Could you take us through the writing and at what point of it you got the agent and how it kind of was fast-tracked?
3: Sure, I'd be happy to. So when I sat down to write, I'm a very goal-oriented person. So I had it in my head that I wanted to finish the manuscript by the end of the year in the kind of shape where I would be happy to send it to an agent. and I didn't really know anything about how how this all worked. And so I started writing in late July, and I calculated how many words a day I need to write in order to do that. And so I figured my manuscript would be about 80,000 words. So that was 388 words a day. And uh, I figured that was totally doable. Um, (laughs) And I had a, a full time job and a son. So I wrote early in the morning, mostly between 5 and 8 a.m. And then sometimes after my kid went to bed, and then on weekends, my husband would take our son to the park. And I ended up finishing in about four months a draft that I sent to beta readers. And I was like, give me your feedback in two weeks. I'm on, a de- I'm on this deadline. <laughs> um, and so they gave me their feedback, and I did my own edits. And I submitted it to one agent. I've learned so much from your show about how wrong I approached every single aspect of this. So it's really I'm so lucky that things worked out. Uh, but a friend of mine who is an investigative journalist and has written a couple of nonfiction books had linked me up with her agent. So we had spoken in in the fall, and she had offered. She said, "Oh, you know, I, I'd be happy to take take a read." So I sent it to one agent, and then I posted on Instagram that I had. You know, I didn't tell a lot of people that I was writing, but once I had sent it to the agent. I posted on Instagram that I had set this goal for myself and I had met it. I sent it to an agent and then somebody reached out to me who I worked with at my first job. I was the editor of the University of Victoria student paper and she was my arts editor and it turned out that she was now a literary agent and she wanted to read the manuscript and i said i'm not sure if i can send it to you i've already sent it to one other person is that okay and she sh- assured me that it was and then at that point a friend of mine was like "um carly i think you need to talk to some people about how this actually works" and so i spoke to a couple of authors and then ended up submitting it to like i think five or so agents and i had let that first agent know somebody else had requested it she ended up reading it in 24 hours and Gave me an offer of representation. Another agent, like I got a couple of offers of representation, so I could email that those the people I the extra five I had submitted to and let them know that there was interest. And then this was in December of 2020, so I can't believe I like did not realize December is the worst time to submit a manuscript. And uh, but from some some luck, my agent Taylor was checking her inbox and she read it, and we spoke December 21st and I ended up signing with with her then and we went we took it out in March so and sold at auction then
2: amazing so what we can learn from this for our listeners is you can still do everything wrong and still manage to make a success of something so A lot of our listeners go, oh, I didn't know this and so I ruined it, etc. But sometimes we blunder our way through and that's the only way we can learn how to do it. And sometimes it really just works out. And the other thing is we tend to work in absolute secrecy. We don't want to tell people we're writing a book because if it doesn't get published, then it's embarrassing or we feel like a failure. But here's the thing. We don't know who we actually know. There's a ton of people that we know that could be connected. Someone could know a literary agent. Someone could know an editor. So sometimes going onto social media and saying, this is this thing I've done. One, you should be proud if you've written a book. You should be proud if you've reached this goal. And two, you never quite know how that's going to pay off.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is just, I didn't really know any authors, but I found that Authors have been very happy to give their advice and speak to me. So, just reaching out and sending notes to people is, I think, so valuable because those two conversations I had, they were 30 minute conversations, but they really, I think, changed everything for me.
2: Yeah. And somebody asked me this the other day. They were like, how do I find published authors who perhaps will mentor my work or who'll look at my work? And certainly if someone has published a few books and they are doing things like teaching and podcasting, et cetera, they, you know, they're extremely, extremely busy, but sometimes authors come up through the ranks together. They kind of baby authors together and they're kind of publishing at the same time. And you know, who the best person to reach out to is if you see someone on social media who's just announced a deal announcement and you know that book is only going to come out in two years time. They're not yet mired in promoting the book or have a deadline for the second book. It's perhaps useful sometimes to reach out and go, I read about your book. It it sounds amazing. Could you read my work, etc.? All you can do is ask and if people don't have the time, they will regretfully decline. But if you don't ask, you don't know, and those are generally the, the best kind of authors to reach out to. So for our listeners, I'm going to just read to you the flap copy before I ask Carly some questions specifically about the book. So it's Six Summers to Fall in Love, One Moment to Fall Apart, A Weekend to Get It Right. They say you can never go home again and for Persephone Fraser, ever since she made the biggest mistake of her life a decade ago, that has felt too true. Instead of spending summers in cottage country on the glittering lakeshore of her childhood, she stays in a stylish apartment in Toronto, keeping everyone a safe distance from her heart. Until she receives the call that sent her racing back to Barry's Bay and into the orbit of San Floric, the man she never thought she'd have to live without. For six summers through hazy afternoons on the water and warm summer nights working in his family's restaurant, Percy and Sam had been inseparable and when Percy returns to the lake their connection is as undeniable as it's always been but until she can confront the decisions she made they'll never know whether their love is bigger than the biggest mistakes of their past told over the course of six years in the past and one weekend in the present every summer after is a gorgeously romantic look at love and the people and choices that mark us forever. So for our listeners this is a wonderful example of a dual timeline narrative and the dual timeline changes so we've got one weekend in the present and then what Carly does is in terms of time stamping she will say this many summers ago like 16 summers ago 15 summers ago and so it goes so can you speak to us a bit about that structure Carly
3: yeah sure um so I love dual timeline novels one of the books that my book has been compared to is love and other words by christina lauren which is also similar in that it has a now and then timeline and for me i knew that i wanted to write the book that way i didn't plot it out although i knew kind of what the central conflict would be uh it's a romance so i knew there would be a a happy ending but i felt that by giving it this kind of structure, a very definite structure where you have six summers in the past, that it was almost easier to tackle because every time I came to a then chapter, I could think, okay, what do I need to happen this summer to move this conflict along and to move their relationship along? And it was so fun to write that way as well. And I think sometimes a very specific kind of structure like that is easier to work within, like you give yourself the framework, and it becomes a little bit easier to tackle. And I think it's, I think the challenge is making sure that readers like they don't hate when you go to the present, or they don't hate when you go to the past. So that was really important to me to make sure that there is drama and tension in both, both timelines.
2: Yeah, because what's happening in the present timeline, if you're going to yank the reader from that to the past, then whatever's happening in the past needs to, one, answer questions that the reader has about the present timeline, and two, it still needs to move the story forward. You can't just keep dragging the reader back into the past and they don't understand why they're there, and then you move them back to the present. You know, the two need to be speaking to each other. They need to be in step with each other and the past always needs to be moving the present along. Now, what Carly's done in this book is you have questions from the beginning. What was this terrible mistake that Persephone or Percy made? Why was it so bad that she didn't see him for so long? And how can they fix it now? And when you have that as like the hook of a book, sometimes the reader can feel manipulated because you just kind of allude to the mistake, but then you don't tell them what the mistake is. So you need to keep upping the stakes. You need to keep upping the tension so that by the time the reader finds out what this thing is, they're not like, oh, for God's sake, we could have found this out. Halfway through, and that would have been great, so how did you approach that? How did you keep upping those stakes? keep the tension going, so that the reader wasn't tempted to just skim to find out what it was that they were fully engaged in the entire story until they found out
3: <laughs> Thank you for thinking that I accomplished that i I think partly because the mistake happens in the past, you There's, I think, two things you're trying to figure out in the past. Is one, one, they don't they start off as best friends, so you're that the there's all this tension around them. They're 13 year olds, like every year there's all all kind of adolescent drama that you're you're kind of like what like when are you two going to get together? But you're also trying to figure out okay, you you're seeing how they are have this like fantastic friendship, so it makes it even harder that they aren't speaking anymore. So I was trying to kind of show how wonderful they are together as friends while like every summer throwing stuff at them, like having lots of stuff come at their way. And then I think in the present, because it's such a short period of time, it's a, it's just a weekend. It wasn't like I would, even though it's still the same, it's a book, it's a book length. It felt like I feel like it doesn't feel like it's dragging it out as much because Persephone is thinking about this mistake it's something that she actually doesn't like to confront very much. So it makes sense that she's not talking about it with people. And yeah, I, I don't know, for me, I just had to, I'm working on another book right now, where I was like, can I do the same thing where there is this issue, and we're going to find out about it later, but it didn't work at all. Because it's like, it's not real. it doesn't feel realistic for this to be revealed later. But it just, I don't know, I haven't given you a good answer at all, but it, it just seemed to make sense to me that we weren't going to talk about it until we got there, because that's kind of the problems that Percy is having. She's put it into the back of her mind, too.
2: Yeah, and every book's structure is different. Every story has a way that that story is going to work, and just because it worked for that book doesn't mean it's going to work for another book. And I think, you know, Cece has said this before in some of her webinars that she's given, that past secrets are great. Secrets in books are always amazing, but you can't just have a secret for secret's sake. That secret needs to be driving everything forward. That secret needs to be affecting the modern day story. It affects the past story, etc., And it, it just just creates tension. And that's something that Carly did extremely well in this book. So for those of you who have a story with like some past secrets that becomes important in the present-day narrative, this is a great book to read to see how Carly did that, how she alluded to the secret but kept the story moving forward and kept the reader engaged with that. You've given us one of your comps, Carly. I feel like another great comp for this book would be Emily Henry's The People We Meet on Vacation. Was that one of your comp titles or not? not really
3: it wasn't because the book wasn't out when I was submitting to agents I think I put Beach Read down because Beach Read was one of the first when I was writing I was I was reading a lot but Beach Read was one of the first books that I felt it was both a romance but it dealt with some tough stuff and so I felt like that was kind of Similar ish, but yes, I would say people we meet on vacation for sure. My comps were terrible, Bianca. Like, I, I, um, I comp Summer Sisters, (laughs) which I didn't realize you should not comp extremely old books. And I comped YA books because there is such a coming of age element. And I didn't realize you should do that either, but yeah. I didn't do the comp
2: thing well either. Ah, You live and learn. And for our listeners, so you really put yourself to a tight schedule in terms of writing the book. Could you tell us just advice for listeners in terms of what worked for you then? What perhaps didn't work? Because I feel sometimes if we go, okay, we have to, I have to write 2000 words a day. Authors will sometimes be way too strict with themselves. And there might be days that the story is just not working. And maybe if you, force yourself to write, you're actually going to take yourself down the wrong path. And sometimes you need to sit back and go, okay, I need to reevaluate, etc. So for our listeners, if you could tell them what worked for you in terms of that approach to writing, and perhaps what you learned from it.
3: Yeah, so I did write every day, there was a week that was just I couldn't, would not have been able to survive that week if I had been writing. So I put it aside. But I found that it just helped me move things along. And because my word count goal was very achievable, I think it made it slightly, you know, I wasn't aiming for 2,000 words a day. Some days I did write 2,000 words, but I was only aiming for 388. And it made it, because I am a parent and because I was working full time, I needed to commit to it and commit to myself and making it just part of my daily habit worked for me because it was just it wasn't I didn't have to question whether I was going to do it or not I did it and then it's been different with the second book but I still am if I'm having a bad day I still sit down and write I suffer from chronic migraines I had a migraine every single day that I wrote every summer after and pregnant I was pregnant and I had major insomnia and I feel like for me I can come up with so many excuses, like, like, I often don't feel like, well to write, but I just commit to it. And I think, you know, one thing is just knowing yourself. So that doesn't work for everybody. I would really recommend I'm goal oriented, but I need external goals. I my own goals for some reason, this word count felt like an external goal that I, I was like committed to, but I really recommend Gretchen Rubin's book, The Four Tendencies. If anybody isn't familiar with it, it helps you understand how to meet goals. It's like a personality. There's a personality quiz element, so you're one of four tendencies. I'm an obliger, which means that I have an easy time meeting external expectations, so like a work deadline, but have a hard time meeting internal expectations, like a New Year's resolution. And so that book, I read it many years ago, and that really helped me figure out how to achieve things that I want
2: to. Amazing, amazing advice there. And I find if I write something down and if I express a goal, if I just say to myself, oh, I'm going to do this many words. I'm an obliger too, which means I'm constantly helping other people and I'm not getting to my own stuff. Whereas if I put it on a to-do list and I go, today I have got to tick this off 400 words. And if I get to the end of the day and I haven't ticked it off, I start to feel anxious because I feel like I haven't done my to-do list. So that kind of helps as well. So for our listeners, we're going to be putting every summer after on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You click on there to buy it. You support an indie bookstore. You support the podcast and you support Carly in the process. Carly, we love the book. We wish you much success for it. For our listeners it's such an awesome summer read you want to read it lying on the dock somewhere lying on the beach in your back garden whatever it is but there's a lot to learn as well in terms of structure so remember now as readers we are no longer just reading for pleasure we are reading as writers which means we're learning from it as well
3: thank you so much for having me bianca
2: I'd like to let you know about a fundraiser that we're doing that, besides raising funds for a really excellent cause, will give you an opportunity to win one of three awesome prizes. Now, my first novel, Hum If You Don't Know The Words, was translated into Ukrainian. And I recently had a Ukrainian reader reach out to say that reading my book had offered her solace and distraction during a really difficult time in her life living in a war zone in the Ukraine. Now, after chatting with her, we decided to do some fundraising for various nonprofits who are doing such amazing work there. So here's the deal. For every $20 you donate, you get one ticket into a draw to win one of three awesome prizes sponsored by Carly, Cece, and myself. If you win one of those prizes, you'll get to decide if you'd like a 45-minute brainstorming session with us, or if you'd prefer to that we give you a detailed 40-page critique of your work in progress. So you get to pick the prize depending on what you need the most. The more you donate, the more tickets you get. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com for more details and to find the link to the GoFundMe. Support an amazing cause and stand a chance to win an awesome prize.
0: rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today.
2: Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest's debut novel, Our Little Secret, was a national bestseller, won the Douglas Kennedy Prize for Best Foreign Thriller in France, and was nominated for the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize for Mystery and the Arthur Ellis Best First Novel Award. Her second best-selling novel, Hurry Home, was shortlisted for the Crime Writers of Canada Best Thriller of 2020. The Hunted, her third book, came out in July 2021 and was nominated for Best Crime Novel 2022. She's lived and worked in Africa, Australia, the US and the UK. She now lives in British Columbia, Canada with her husband and two children. It's my pleasure to welcome Roz Ne. Roz welcome to the show
4: hi Bianca thanks Uh, it's great to be here thanks for having me
2: my absolute pleasure and the reason why we specifically needed to have you on the show is we've had multiple of our listeners reach out and say to us when are you going to interview Rosne?" Nay so even though we didn't get to do the interview to coincide with the hunted coming out I figured better later than never so Roz, you were telling me about a writing school that you're starting. Will you tell our listeners more about that?
4: Yeah, it's brand new. Like literally, I think my website went live yesterday. But yeah, I've decided that I just want to get back to teaching and working with kids a bit more and getting back to writing when it's not about an industry, actually, when it's just about what you're thinking and how you can get it on a page. So I've started a studio space in Nelson, where I live, but also an online school. And it's, it's for kids after school and for adults in the evening. Um, and I'll be doing editing, mentoring, uh, ghostwriting, uh, classes, yeah, workshops, summer camps, loads of stuff.
2: That's amazing. And will it all be sort of live lessons online or is it going to be content that people can kind of access in their own time? How will that be structured for people who don't live in your part of the world?
4: Yeah, well, I'm going to be, it is going to be online as well as the in-person classes. And I'm going to try and just organize it so that I don't know, probably recorded, yeah, recorded Zoom sessions that they can access. But you have to pre-register. It's a, it's kind of a co- an eight-week course and things like that. Yeah, but it's all through my website, rosnay.com. It's all up there right now, waiting for classes to be filled.
2: that's amazing and you know for our listeners you're all writers and it's in the genes I feel like many of you are going to have kids who who are going to turn out to be writers as well and many of the children listen to the podcast while they're in the car with their parents and so we have to constantly apologize for all the cursing that we do (laughs) Um, but you know I mentor a young 12 year old uh, writer Olivia who is such a phenomenal writer. She blows my socks off every week with her kind of understanding of story, et cetera. And I think that that's an amazing age to start kids writing at.
4: I totally agree. I used to teach high school English. I was a high school English teacher for eight years and I really miss it. It's such a creative age and stage. Yeah, I think it's everything's really pure and, and they really experiment in a way that adults can feel a bit more self-conscious. I love it. I I was just teaching last weekend in Kamloops for a Young Authors Conference, and it was so good to be back in amongst that. Yeah, it was inspiring.
2: Yeah, because there isn't that fear of failure, you know, because you and I were talking beforehand how much, so much of writing is an industry for us, you know, it's linked mm. to our income, it's linked to... All of this kind of stuff, which means that some of the creative fun gets taken out of it, because we're constantly trying to produce a product that will appeal to readers, which means it's marketable, which means the publisher is going to make money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think you know many adults are in that cycle now as well. It's like, what does the market want? What can I produce that might sell? And that takes so much of the joy out of it.
4: Totally, I think the focus is so different when you're dealing with teenagers. Or, and young adults they're not thinking in those terms it's, that's what I mean about the purity of it I think they're just thinking about the language and the sentences onto a page and it's, it's kind of where writing is at is, is most enjoyable like you say it isn't about you know people in the industry comparing their career to another career and all of the self-doubt and like the pressure of oh my god I can't think of a new idea none of that none of that exists and I, I love that space
2: And while it's great for younger writers, I think there's many of our listeners as well who've kind of reached query burnout. They've written this novel, they've revised it and revised it, it's been out on well, not on submission, they're querying it with agents and they just either don't hear anything or they just keep getting rejections. And for many of them, they say, I don't know, maybe I'm just going to give up writing. And that depresses the hell out of me because there's a reason why they came to writing in the first place. And I feel like for our listeners, if you are experiencing that kind of burnout, I think this is a great way to recapture the love for writing that brought you to it in the first place.
4: Could not agree more with you, honestly. That's exactly it. And I think if we can get back to that and spend some time in that kind of zone with writing and just enjoying it and feeling pure about it, yeah, I feel like there's no need to give up. There's no need. It becomes joyful again.
2: Um, absolutely. Okay, Roz, we are going to do a lightning round now, which we haven't done with our authors for a while. I have 15 questions and you just answer them as quickly as you can and we'll move on to the next one. So here we go. Are you a plotter or a panzer?
4: I am a reformed plotter. I used to be a great big giant panzer, but I've had to learn that it doesn't work well for me. So now I plot.
2: It's amazing. You hear that like angelic music, like, ah, as writers figure out that that's not the best way to go and that they will have to change their ways. Right. Do you write on computer or in longhand?
4: Computer, 100%.
2: Do you like writing more in private or in public?
4: Private. Mm, Yeah, I'm a private soul.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Silence or music?
4: Silence. Silence. God, I sound boring, don't I? Silence and on my own.
2: (laughs) That's the way I do it. So, But I'm always fascinated by writers who are able to go out in public and sit in a coffee shop and or they blast music while they're writing. I'm like, how the hell do you think if you're blasting music, man? Uh, Do you share your work while drafting or do you wait until the end?
4: I share only with very, very, very select, about three people maybe, um, who are all doing much better than me in their careers. So I'm. those are the people I'll show, thriller writers, I, I know really well and trust. But that's it, though. Nobody else. Yeah,
2: and that's a good point. Find writers who are, well, I don't want to say better than you. <laughs> I mean, these are more commercial writers. But for our listeners, find writers whose work you really admire and who you feel that their work is going to elevate to your own. Okay, so what's your favorite point of view, first or third person?
4: Well, mm, that's a tricky one. I think probably first, because it seems to be the more commercial amongst the thriller writers. However, I think I can write in third person and I'm interested to see if I can maybe sneak that past an editor one of these days.
2: Always challenge yourself. And in the same vein, present or past tense?
4: I think present if I can, because it's so much more immediate and I'm writing thrillers and they need to feel like kind of throat grippingly present tense. So I'd say I'd plump for that one.
2: That took me a while to acquire the knack for present tense. I always just automatically went to past and it felt weird when I started writing in present, but now i much, much prefer it. So that's always interesting how you do that. Right. Prologues are awesome or prologues are cheating? (laughs)
4: That's funny. I only just found out that this is a debate to be had. I think prologues are cheating, but remain awesome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You've covered all your bases there, Raz. I love it. I love it. Do you prefer drafting or revising?
4: Revising. No, yeah. When I'm in a first draft, I always feel like I'm kind of out in no man's land completely on my own. And I much prefer the scaffold of having kind of edits to work on and other other eyes on it, I'm a kind of a team player, really, so yeah i'm I'm happier in the revising stage.
2: Are you a fan of adverbs and adjectives, or do you try and cut them all out
4: i I am a fan of them, but I also try to be minimalist. I think you can you can swamp your writing if you use it too much um but you need them, so I'm uh again covering all my bases both I'm both.
2: But again, as a thriller writer, pacing is so incredibly important in what you write. And so there'll be moments, I figure, where all of that kind of gets taken out for the sake of pacing. And there's times that when the character's kind of regrouping or you get to take a breath, that that's when you get to keep them
4: in. Yeah, totally. And I do think that I'm a slightly different style of thriller writer, too, because I am quite languagey. And I find that I can't seem to switch that off. And so... I do take a bit of time over the kind of the wordiness of it, I suppose. And for that reason, I will cling to my adjectives and my adverbs, yeah.
2: That's something I'm going to speak to you about at the end of this is your voiciness because it's something you're known for and it's something your readers really admire. And I'll be asking for your advice there. So, so we will come back to that. Do you love or hate the copy editing process?
4: Copy editing, like as in commas and putting in hate. Well, 100%.
2: and when when you're working with a copy editor who's like, you've given this date as a full moon, but in fact there was a lunar eclipse.
4: <laughs> no, I know, God, oh my God, no, hate. Sorry to all copy editors who are very nice people, but no, hate.
2: <laughs> Do you sit there muttering darkly at 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 all of their comments?
4: Yeah, and to start with, I started Googling to try and prove them wrong, but then I just gave up in the end because they weren't wrong, unfortunately.
2: <laughs> that is amazing what copy editors know, man. They are they are scary with their attention to detail. Okay, what normally comes to you first, character or plot?
4: Character, definitely. Including character names, that's always first. I think it's because I'm overexcited about naming people. I should have had like 25 children or not, maybe. But um, yeah, no, I love naming them and I get the character and I don't always know what the problem is.
2: Amazing. Amazing. It's weird because a lot of thriller writers tend to think of a premise or a plot first, and then they come up with characters. So I always love it when I speak to someone in the genre who it works the other way for.
4: Yes, I probably should know my premise more, but you know, I'm bumbling through.
2: Your process is what the process is. And this explains, again, your voiciness because character comes to you first. So so we will chat about that. What do you prefer, the three-act structure or using more action beats that's like in something like Save the Cat?
4: Well, isn't Save the Cat a three-act structure? Because I feel like I use their worksheets like a Bible. So I feel like I do rely on Save the Cat. I'm still actually, to be honest, still learning the structure of a three-act play. Um, Yeah. What I
2: love about Save the Cat is it does the three-act structure, but then it breaks each act down into those action beats. Whereas, you know, if you just look at general three-act structure, it's just like, so long as the first act has your inciting incident and ends with a key event, you're good. Whereas Jessica Brody is like, uh-uh, no way, no how, these are the kind of things you need to be hitting in each of the acts.
4: I think that book saved my writing life, saved the cat, saved Rosnay's thriller writing career, really. I've studied that like it's my school to attend. Honestly, I think uh, I'll cling to that book forever, I think.
2: Yeah, incredibly, incredibly helpful. It was a huge revelation for me as well, especially as a pantser. I needed a bit more structure in my pantsing, which kind of is a contradiction but we'll go with that anyway. What do you prefer writing dialogue or description?
4: Description actually. Even though I thought I was really, you know, that I do listen to dialogue all the time and I feel like I try and write down stuff that I hear that's quite fresh and I feel like I've got an ear for that. However, I can I can really unleash myself and settle right in for the for the descriptive parts. So I'm I'm quite comfy in those. And then finally,
2: are you a fan of backstory or do you try and avoid it at all costs?
4: No, I'm a fan of it actually, but maybe that's part of my, my urge to over-describe things. I think that I, I'm learning, as probably everybody is, not to give too much of it, not like reams and reams of backstory, but I think it's necessary. You've got to have a character that, where things have happened to them before you've begun the story
2: and and that's part of characterization and that's probably why character comes to you first because even though we see the character from a certain point in a novel in terms of inciting incident why now why today why not last week that character comes with all kinds of baggage they are who they are today because of all kinds of things that happened to them in the past and then we factor in something like lisa cron's misbelief in terms of character a character believing something and then through the course of the story finding out that that was not actually true. So that makes complete sense which brings us to your voiciness. So The Hunted is such a good tension-filled dual POV thriller because you're so good with the voiciness and weaving in the backstory and leaving clues etc. So for the writers out there who are aiming for voicey novels, who kind of want to keep that in their books what is your advice to them in terms of that
4: for writing in oh god it's difficult to give advice I feel like I don't really know that I'm doing what I'm doing it's almost like a it's just kind of how I write I think that you do have to get into the head of especially if you're writing in first person you have to get into their head and you have to adapt what they say and how they say it according to who who this person is so I think if you're writing, even like a a male voice is going to be really different in how they see things. And and the background, like in The Hunted, I've got um, Leo, who's gone through such a different life to the girl that he meets in Africa, Stevie, who's the other voice. Their backgrounds are completely different. So I had to adapt. Yeah. How I how I write them, how I represent them. And in terms of
2: that, because when I'm trying to get to the core of a writer's process, when you are writing each of them, does it feel like you have climbed into their bodies and you are looking out at this fictional world from inside of them? Or do you, Roz, as the author, in your mind's eye, see their faces and see them moving through the world and acting in a certain way?
4: I think the characters who I've loved writing the most, I've climbed right in and I'm walking around in their skin. And I feel like that with Leo. Actually, Leo in the Hunted is my favourite character I've ever written. And I felt like I completely understood him, and almost did walk around as him, seeing things and struggling, you know, on all the ways that he does. I know I completely, if I can inhabit the character, I feel that's me writing at my best.
2: Yeah, yeah, very much so. And when you approach each of them, is it that the voice, their voice, comes to you very quickly, or is it a slow kind of torturous? process and i know for characters like leo you'll sometimes feel like you're channeling them but for other characters that you have to work a bit harder for i always say that the beginning of a novel in terms of figuring out point of view and the voice is like circling a building over and over while you're trying to find your way in sometimes it's the front door sometimes it's the back door sometimes it's the fire escape so for you what does your process there look like do you spend time with this character getting to know them before you even begin writing do you write it and then go this is not the voice that I wanted how how does that process look for you
4: yeah I think it takes me a little while to get into character actually I usually write the first 50 pages again and again and again and as I get to know them myself their voice will get more and more refined but it's not always the case that I know them right at the beginning or what they sound like or how they think it's, you have to get to know them it's like you're saying walking around the building it's the same thing you have to you have to tell yourself the story and get to know these people in your head before you can really write a kind of a kind of lean version of them on the page
2: and when do you know you've got it right do you have like an epiphany where it's like aha this is the voice that I want is it a case of you rely on those three readers to say to you okay Roz you've kind of nailed it now
4: I usually rely on Robin Harding to tell me that I've got it right and I'm not being a dummy anymore. <laughs> she reads all everything I write and Chevy Stevens as well she'll always tell me I'm a dummy. So yeah, those two will say right good. Now you can get you can carry on past page 50. And I think it's
2: important for us to know at what point we know it's the right thing. Whether it's an external reader who's able to say to us, yes, you've nailed it. Whether it's just a loosening in your chest. Like for me, I'll have a lot of anxiety in those opening pages. And for me, it's like when I'm able to kind of breathe without feeling that chest pain, and then I'm like, okay, I've I've got it. And I think for each writer, it's gonna be different. And I think it's kind of important for us to figure out how this gets revealed to us. And when you're deciding on the character that comes to you first, do you find that that gets triggered by real life people, by watching a show and suddenly there's a peripheral character who does something and you're like, oh, that's interesting to me? Like, how does that happen for you? Or is it you're just sitting there one day and something comes to you? Or are you actively going, okay, I need to start my next book. What am I going to write about? Who is interesting to me?
4: So I think, yeah, I do have moments where I panic or I think I don't know what my next idea is. That horrible feeling where you just feel blank. But I am always watching I do watch quite a lot of true crime. And I am definitely always watching the people around me. And I have got a, a kind of filing cabinet of people I've met and have stored over the years. So like I think I when I relax a bit and trust it that something's still there's still stuff percolating that I don't maybe don't even know about, it'll come to me. And Sometimes I do. I am quite clinical about it as well, though. As a thriller writer, I can say, right, I've done a stalker book. I've done a child thriller one. I've done one of those. So I kind of leaf through, right, what haven't I done? So in a sense, I can be quite clinical like that and then start to think in terms of that particular, what's, what's the crime maybe? Maybe I'm going to do that. But then characters are still the first things that emerge for me. And I definitely use... People I know, I just kind of switch it a notch and try not to make it too recognizable.
2: Yeah, well, I think all writers are kind of literary magpies. We see these shiny things out in the world, whether it's a personality, whether it's a scenario, we take it back to our nest, and there this glinting thing sits until such time as we can pay attention to it. And I think that's important for all writers out there. So many writers think, okay, being a good writer means you spend all your time bum in the chair writing. And while that's a really important part of the process, going out into the world and living and reading other things and watching other things and listening to podcasts is so important. I just finished uh, The Thing About Pam. And have you watched that, Roz?
4: No, I haven't. Thing About Pam, no, I haven't.
2: It's Renee Zellweger and it's based on the true story and you just watch this and your mind just keeps blowing and you cannot believe that this woman got away with this shit for as long as she did and it's just so compelling. And you know, I watch something like that and I'm like, man, to be in the mind of this person who actually just keeps doing this shit and getting away with it, etc. You know, it gets the wheels spinning. I love that you're inspired by people and scenarios in real life because this is where we as writers get our inspiration from.
4: Yeah, from everywhere. I was driving home from that writing festival I was telling you about and I was listening to a Taylor Swift ca- song came on and I listened to it and I thought, I could write a thriller about that song. There's something in it. I'm going to I'm gonna put that one away. I was like, hmm. And then I started for the next hour thinking, oh, I don't even know what, she- well, I'm not sure about what she meant in the song, but I was starting to attach a thriller to it, definitely.
2: It doesn't matter what the hell she was thinking. What matters is is your kind of emotional and intellectual response to it. Well, Roz, we're out of time. I don't know how that happened. For our listeners, we have linked to Roz's books on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy from there, you support Roz, you support an indie bookstore, and you support the podcast at the same time. And please go to Roz's website to check out those courses. Don't be the writer that allows yourself to get to the point where you just suffer from queering burnout and fatigue and and that allows you to give up writing always always find find the joy in it
4: totally right oh it's been such a such a fun thing chatting with you becca i could talk for another three hours
2: i know i think we're gonna have to have you back for the next one definitely (laughs) are you looking for beta readers some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000-word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, welcome to another COMPs session where the fabulous Emily Summer from East City Bookshop joins us to answer your COMP questions. And I'm super, super excited to announce, and you are all the first to hear this, on the 17th of September I will be going to East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C., to do an event there for my forthcoming novel the witches of moonshine manor now i would like to say if you're a fan of me or my writing come to that but i know you're all going to be there for emily so you get to meet us both at that event and emily and i are super excited about it
5: we are so excited i cannot wait to see you again bianca and i hope that we get lots of um, fans of the podcast in to buy to buy your new book too
2: Yeah, and come there to to meet Emily and to pick her brain as well. Right, Emily, let's dive in. Let's start with the first comp.
6: Hello. I have a novel that I would consider somewhere between upmarket and book club. Its title right now is called Demolition by Neglect. It's the early 2000s, and 60-something-year-old Linny Hendricks has just discovered her dead father's cryptic messages in the family laundry shop's century-old cellar. She clashes with an older gentleman who recently has moved in down the street and with other family and community forces over the demolition of another building she believes she now owns and risks her memories and her livelihood. Can she save the building? Does she want to? Is it the ghost of her father, or is it the buildings that stand
5: in the way of her happiness? Okay. So the first one is Demolition by Neglect. And because this one deals with saving a building and what's happening with this building, I immediately thought of two books that deal with sort of neighborhoods, communities, and, and specifically with buildings. So one is called White Elephant, and the author is Julie Langsdorf. And the other is A Good Neighborhood by Therese Ann Fowler. So both of those are sort of building adjacent or centric books that give way to like community disagreements and interpersonal drama. For this one, I would would have loved to know where in the U.S. it takes place or where in the world it takes place and sort of the tone. So that's just a a reminder that the tone and sort of the feeling that the book evokes can sometimes help with a comp, even if it doesn't have a plot parallel, because maybe this one would be better comped to something that doesn't have anything to do with other buildings at all. But that was just my best guess.
2: Yeah. And, you know, for our listeners, booksellers are on something called Edelweiss, which, you know, gives them comps for the books that are coming out so that they know how to hand sell these books and what to comp it to. So they really, really know their stuff. So the more information you can give them in that regard, the better, you know, the the comp titles will be for you. Okay. Next one.
7: Hi there. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and really need help with my comps. I am writing an upper YA road trip romance. The road trip is based in the cult that the two teens, Cooper and Jane, are a part of. And it is a way for them to go see the world and then make their decision if they're coming back to the cult or being shunned. Cooper was in charge of making all the plans and all the stops, to which he has created 10 envelopes, one for each stop for Jane to open. And then there's an experience planned by him. However, the night before they leave, Cooper ends his life, but Jane doesn't know this till she opens the first envelope on the train in anticipation of him meeting her at the next stop. Another boy on the train comforts her, and then they are the ones that take this journey together.
5: So the next one is The Road Trip. I think this one sounds so interesting, and the aspect of this story that I thought to comp is the sort of tasks and the scavenger hunt, the clues element of this road trip adventure. So two older titles that I don't think are too old to comp because I think they're popular enough. I think that they still have a place in the canon would be the Dash and Lily books by David Levithan and Rachel Cohn, the Dash and Lily Christmas book has been made into a Netflix movie, which is adorable. And then John Green's Looking for Alaska, which has this same element of trying to get to the bottom of both what's happening with this character who is not present, and sort of friends who are going on the adventure together. A more recent comp that just came out is I Kissed Shara Wheeler by Casey McQuiston. So I Kissed Shara Wheeler is Casey's first young adult novel. And it has a similar clue, scavenger hunt, adventure aspect of these two older titles. So I would I would look at all of those. And I think it it sounds so interesting. And I can't wait to hear more about that one.
2: And just remember, when it comes to comps, we're looking for balance. So if you find a title that's older, that is absolutely perfect, use it, but then balance it out with a brand new title to show that whatever that book is about is still relevant. Okay. All right. Next one.
6: Hi, thank you for doing this. I'm writing adult worldview fantasy or possibly fabulism. It's dual POV. The man is seeking to end male starvation. And the woman is a visionary learning the origins of their people. It's set 5,000 years in the future. The comps I have now are the world gives way because of the self-contained world and how high we go in the dark because of the merged life forms. I thank you so much for doing this.
5: Okay, next we have our adult fantasy 5,000 years in the future. Now, I would love to hear more. I mean, I know we don't have the opportunity to hear more, but here's my thought process. When I'm thinking of this, this caller says that the two comps that she's thought of so far are The World Gives Way and How High We Go in the Dark. And those are brand new. I think they sound like perfect comps. And as a bookseller, I think that both of those books have really made a splash. They've done really well. That tells me that it is a literary fiction type fantasy that could be shelved either in fiction or in the sci-fi fantasy section. So I think those are great. But since our caller called in, I thought of a few others just to add to it. I thought of Sea of Tranquility by Emily Mandel, which is her newest one. And I think that one has that literary angle of the others. It does go into the future. I also thought about Appleseed by Matt Bell, which was mentioned on at least one of the book's that the listener mentioned, it was either mentioned on the blurbs for the world gives way or how high we go in the dark or both, which is a great place for you to get comps if you can't call in and get in touch with us right away. So if you can think of one, I would go to that book and see who blurbed it. And if they have a book that sounds similar, because that is how agents and editors find those blurbs. They want you to read the blurb on the dust jacket and think, oh, I liked that. So I probably like this one too. So there's usually a reason that those are connected. Claire North's Notes from the Burning Age might be another recent one that I would have this person take a look at. And I would also look at the work of N.K. Jemisin and Charlie Jane Anders. And those are a little harder fantasy, a little less literary fiction, more genre fiction. So I would see
2: if any of those felt right amazing and just a question there in terms of what you said in terms of the shelving of you know certain books like does this happen that a book has crossover appeal and so you as the bookseller in the bookstore get to decide where you're shelving it or if you're going to shelve it in both places
5: yes that happens it often happens with a book that reads like literary fiction but has a speculative element to it or has a fantastical element and sometimes we try it in both places and just see where it sells better. Sometimes we shelve it along with the author's other books. So if they have one book that's a little bit more of a crossover than the others, we'll keep it in the section that the majority of their work is in. Um, but yeah, sometimes we just guess. And, and we do a lot of research too to see where where the publisher wants it to be. But sometimes even then, you know, there are a lot of places, different sections of the store that are mentioned in the jacket copy. And we just have to try it out and see what works
2: and that's so interesting so for me i'm not really someone who reads a lot of speculative fiction which is hilarious considering i wrote the dystopian short story the Prince viper but you know i don't go into a bookstore and gravitate towards that section but like one of my favorite books of all time is emily st john mandel's station 11 yes well, and we shelve that in the fiction section because
5: we are sort of thinking of what reader is going to find it, and that is probably a reader like you that's not going to be looking for the harder sci-fi and fantasy. So that's where that lives for us. But it is it is a judgment call, and it can be kind of fun. It's a puzzle to see where it where where readers are going to find it the easiest.
2: Yeah, a psychological experiment. And, you know, for our listeners, this is important for you because when you're pitching agents, you need to try and keep in mind where you think your book is going to be shelved. So an important aspect for you to keep in mind. Okay, next one. Hi, this is Connie.
6: I am looking for a comp for my women's fictional novel, which has a 60-year-old protagonist who's looking towards her third act. Most of the books I've seen with older women main characters either deal with adult children relationships or the characters are more elderly and infirm. I'm calling it Eat, Pray, Love meets Golden Girls. At her 60th birthday party, Marcia feels uncertain. Her mother has just died and she has not yet recovered from her husband's death earlier in the year. When a client crashes the party to embarrass her professionally, All she has left is her own squad of golden girls. In her mother's things, she discovers a secret that takes her to England, where she learns about her past and figures out her third act.
5: Okay, next we have Connie with her women's fiction, which she describes, and I love, as Eat, Pray, Love meets the Golden Girls. So I love thinking about this third act, and two very recent books immediately came to mind, one is called Delphine Jones Takes a Chance by Beth Morey. That is brand new, I believe, but looks very appealing. I think is starting to sell well. Beth Morey's previous book did really well. It was the love song of Missy Carmichael. So I think people are familiar with her. And then one that is about to come out in paperback is called Lorna Mott Comes Home by Diane Johnson. So years ago, Diane Johnson had the very popular book, La Divorce. But this is a recent one of hers. And both of these are about women in midlife or later midlife, not elderly, but who are sort of figuring out what are their next steps. And I think either of those seem like they would evoke the same sort of feeling and, and appeal to the same audience. Two others I thought that that gear a little bit more historical fiction and, and skew a little bit older, but might have the same vibe are Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce and Mornings with Rosemary by Libby Page. But I think the first two, I think Beth Morey and Diane Johnson are right on the money.
2: I love seeing how characters names are finding themselves into titles, you know, because there seems to be like cycles and trends when it comes to, to titles. And again, for our listeners, something to keep in mind when you're choosing a title, but all of these titles you've suggested have got the character's name in them.
5: Yes, absolutely. If they've got the character's name in it and it's the same with book covers, right? Like trends happen and we, we ride those waves for as long as they last.
2: Yeah.
8: Okay. Next one. Thanks so much to everyone for this help with comps. I have an 80,000 word, dual POV, dual timeline book club fiction set in Northern Canada. My protagonist only wants to sleep away a horrific hangover and dream about his next door neighbor, the one that got away, but is accused of stealing his buddy's prized moose head. He only has until midnight to retrieve it or his home will be destroyed. My other POV took the day off work to write a piece of erotic fiction for the burlesque show later that evening. She is trying to concentrate but can't stop peeking through the window to see what her neighbor is up to. The tone of novel is joyful. A heartwarming love letter to Northern communities, nature, and the quirky characters that live there. So far, the only comps I have are old. Canary Row for the mischievous male friendships, erotic stories for a Punjabi woman for the short excerpts of amateur erotic stories and romance, and the all-in-one day and ticking clock aspect of Run, Low Run.
5: Please help. Okay, so the next one is our, our book set in Northern Canada with the two neighbors. I loved the description of one neighbor who's writing the erotic fiction and getting distracted by the other neighbor who's just trying to sleep off a hangover. And this immediately made me think of the TV show Northern Exposure, which is probably too old for a comp, but as a fan, that spoke to me right away. In terms of a book I think that this might have the same feeling because the tone is joyful and quirky. And that makes me think of Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. Again, with the character's name in the title, Evie Drake Starts Over is... So loving and warm and such a pleasure to read. And it is about two different characters who are sort of figuring things out and becoming friends with one another. And I also thought about Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Stradle. So that has the same feel of quirky characters. It has a very happy and warm overall feel to the book. And the setting is important. So in, in our comp query, we're in northern Canada. In the Kitchens of the Great Midwest, we're in the Midwest. But the, the place is important in both places. So I
2: would look at those. Wonderful. Okay, next one.
9: Hi, Bianca. I'm looking for comp titles, please. My debut memoir, Against the Wind, completed at 73,000 words, is a period piece set during the second wave of feminism in the 1970s, 1980s. My story couples my struggle for personal liberty, my desire to escape an alcoholic and occasionally violent husband with a desire for professional fulfillment. We begin flight lessons together. He, hoping this will forge a new bond. Me, waiting for the right time to end my personal hell. My aviation success is empowering. I leave my husband and embark on a career in commercial aviation. I soon understand I've escaped abuse from one man but flown into a storm of harassment from many of my all-male colleagues who tell me if women were meant to fly, they'd call the cockpit a box office.
5: Next, we have Against the Wind, our debut memoir of flight lessons and then subsequent aviation success. So I think this is one of those that is so well poised for what is hot right now. Not I'm not an agent or an editor, but I as a bookseller I'm seeing a lot of books about flight and women in the skies. So I think this one is really right on the money. My first comp is not a memoir, it's literary fiction, but it's Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead.
2: Loved that book. Oh, loved the it.
5: The best. It was my probably my favorite novel of 2021. And Marion Graves, who is the pilot at the heart of Great Circle, is such a strong and wonderful character. So I think if you evoke Great Circle, even if it's your story, if you're evoking like a real life Marion Graves, even if it's not in the same time period, I think that. People are going to take note. And there are two other brand new books that have just come out within the last few weeks that I think capitalize on this women in the the air trend. They are both about flight attendants, but they are have the angle of female empowerment and women making it in the man's world. Of air travel. So the most recent is called Fly Girl by Anne Hood. So that's the author Anne Hood who has written novels that you might know, but it is her memoir of being a flight attendant. And it's sort of in the same time period where our memoir is taking place. So I would absolutely look at that one. And the other is a piece of history. This is narrative nonfiction by Nell McShane Wolfhart, and it's called The Great Stewardess Rebellion. And again, it's got that sort of, you know, a few decades ago piece to it. But it is about women who are dealing with the sexism of the pilots and the time that they're living in. And I think together there's there's a real trend here. So great job on that.
2: Amazing. Yeah, I remember years ago when I was doing research for him, if you don't know the words, and I was chatting to a South African steward at that point who who was serving sort of business class back in the 70s. And they had to go for weekly weigh-ins. If they picked up like half a kilogram, they could not fly. Uh, this, the way their makeup and stuff had to be done, it was crazy stuff.
5: Yes, it's so hard to imagine. But I think that those tidbits that seem
2: unreal to us now are what makes it so interesting to read 100% about. and exactly why they needed a revolution in the sky. Okay, Absolutely. next one. Hi, my name
10: is Gina, and I'm writing a modern epistolary novel about a dysfunctional marriage between a man battling a serious illness and his self-centered wife. There's a mysterious other woman hovering between them, and that woman's very curious adult son, who finds emails, text messages, letters, tweets, lawyer notes, medical reports, real estate appraisals, and other digital artifacts written and shared between his mother and this couple many years after they wrote them. When the son learns of not one, but two deeply hidden secrets his mother kept from him about this couple and about himself when she was alive, his world falls apart and he must work his way back to forgiving the people he loved who are no longer living. I'm struggling with comps because I'm not sure if they should relate to the epistolary structure of the novel or the plot of the love triangle gone awry or the uncovering of lost loved ones secrets. I appreciate your help. Thank you.
5: Okay, so we have Gina's modern epistolary novel of a dysfunctional marriage. And she said in her recording that she wasn't sure whether to comp the epistolary form, the love triangle, the family secrets. And I thought of several comps that I think are very different from each other, but deal with each aspect of this. So the first thing is the wonderful Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal. So that is not, it's not epistolary, but it has a very unique voice and tone. And it is right in the heart of this crumbling marriage. So Department of Speculation, anyone who has read that or is familiar with the brilliant Jenny Offal is immediately going to know, oh, we're getting into the weeds of this marriage and we're really going to know what's going on. In terms of all of the archives and artifacts that are used in here, I thought about a mystery that just came out and has done really well called The Appeal by Janice Hallett. So it doesn't sound like this is a a traditional mystery in the way that The Appeal is, but The Appeal's conceit is really that you're reading the correspondence between two lawyers. So you're seeing their letters, their emails to each other, and you're looking at all of the evidence that is available to them. So I think in terms of this digital trail that the sun is finding, it could be very reminiscent of what Janice Hallett did in the appeal. And then finally, in terms of absolutely captivating family secrets last summer's, the paper palace by Miranda Cowley Heller. It has a love triangle. It has uncovering family secrets and it has Sort of deciding when you can forgive, when you can move on. So, three very different titles, but together it sounds like they might hit a few notes in this
2: one. For anyone who is interested in the Janice Hallett book, we did interview her on the podcast and we did recommend this book in terms of the way it was structured in these interviews and in emails and in, in all of this kind of correspondence. So interesting. And It's interesting as well that Emily mentioned Department of Speculation, because even if, you know, your book isn't about the nitty gritty of a marriage in terms of structure, that book was phenomenal in that it had like a scene in a paragraph and then that was it. Boom, it was done. And then another one. And it was just mind blowing in terms of its structure. So if you're interested in books with unusual structures, these are both books that you are going to want to pick up.
5: Yes. My husband loved The Appeal. He flew through it in like 12 hours and he is a very hard critic. So he loved it. And so I know if he likes it, then I can hand sell it to anybody because he's my toughest customer.
11: I'm trying to find comparables for my novel, which is literary fiction. After college, the charismatic Dawn Perkins establishes a commune to fulfill her dream of being surrounded by friends on a low impact commune on the Root, Oregon homestead where she was raised. But after 12 years, the commune's failing economically and socially. Instead of listening to the suggestions of others, she works doggedly behind their backs to muscle the commune forward, her way. But her world is upended when her 13-year-old son announces the commune should get a computer, and everyone else agrees. Afterward, the residents demand even more changes to make life easier. One by one, the people most vital to her pull away emotionally or depart. If she can't face the trauma that caused her to become such a control freak, Dawn will lose her family, home, livelihood, and the ideology that drives her dreams. Thanks a lot.
5: So I had the hardest time thinking of something that dealt with this next one with charismatic Dawn Perkins on the commune. I think it sounds so interesting, so unusual, and I would say some people might Have a tendency to compare it to The Girls by Emma Klein because I feel like that is the most recent sort of cult or commune book. I would not. It doesn't seem like it has that same feel, but I would take a look at Arcadia by Lauren Groff. So that's an older Lauren Groff, but it is about a commune and it does go through years of the commune. So, sort of the heyday and then the difficulties that this group sees. T.C. Boyle's Drop City also deals with sort of a similar type of community and the challenges and the the growing pains. And then finally, there's one that I haven't read, but it came out, I think, in 2020. So it's recent. And it's Molly Dektar's The Ash Family, which is also about a woman who is living in community, a community that she cares very deeply about and trying to decide sort of how to keep it together, when to stay, when to move on. So I would look at all three of those. Okay, next one.
6: Hi, I'm looking for comps for my women's fiction. Neve is a reporter who goes to Ireland to write a personal interest story about people in decades old photos that her father took. A romance develops between her and a pub owner she meets who's helping her meet the locals to find the people in the photos. Her research leads her to discover a family secret in the new boyfriend's family and she has to figure out how to reveal what she's learned without making everything worse. There are several significant characters between 60 and 80, and Neve's mother has Alzheimer's, and over the course of the story, she comes to be at peace with that condition rather than fighting it and feeling bitter. There are a number of poignant tearjerker moments, and the style and tone are similar to Maeve Binchy. and the Alzheimer's theme is reminiscent of The Notebook, but both of those are way too old to use. Any suggestions you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much.
5: Next, we have Neve, who is going to Ireland to uncover the secrets of these photos. And our caller said that her references so far, her comps would be Maeve Benchy and the notebook. And there is an Alzheimer's storyline in here, too. So that immediately made me think of Still Alice by Lisa Genova, which is a more recent, still a little bit older, but a, a, certainly a more recent comp than The Notebook. And I was trying to think of authors who are more recent than Maeve Benchy, but write in a similar style and about similar stories and similar characters. So here I have just some authors that I think that this listener might want to check out. Elizabeth Berg, Julia Glass, Jacqueline Michard, The Great Ann Tyler, Sue Miller, Jane Hamilton, and Adriana Trigiani. So all of those are writers that I think write similar type women's fiction with characters where there's often travel or there's often, you know, family history dealing with lots of interpersonal relationships. And all of them have more recent books than Maeve Benchy. So I would look at I would look at any of those, but all of those seem to have the right feel. And there's probably a book, at least by a few of them, that will that will really seem like a good fit.
2: Yeah, I've been a Julia Glass fan for years, but Sue Miller I only discovered, I think, a year or two ago when I got to interview her for a bookstore event, and I loved her latest book so much that I immediately went and bought her entire backlist because. Yeah, it is. It it feels like a windfall a because you don't have to wait forever for the author's next book because you yes. just get to dive in.
5: Yes, I did that recently with Katie Kitamura and Charlotte McConaughey. So when I read their most recent, I thought they were so stunning that I immediately went back and read their previous novel, which I never do anymore because I have to keep reading what's new and what's forthcoming. So when I go back and read an author's backlist, it really says something.
12: Okay, our last one. Thank you so much for the generous advice on the shit no one tells you about writing. I've enjoyed listening to the comp recommendations, and I'm hoping you can help with mine. My novel is a YA science-heavy fantasy that centers around a 16-year-old math prodigy who relies on her synesthesia with numbers and a healthy dose of sarcasm to hide from the social anxiety she has experienced ever since her mother died 10 years before. She just wants to lose herself in numbers, but when her synesthesia reopens portals to her mother's dying world that had been shut for the past 17 years, she must find a way to fix the portals before her power dooms both worlds. As if that wasn't enough, a violent group bent on using her powers for their own agenda kidnaps her friends, and she must choose, save the only family she has left, or save her mother's world." The book deals with themes of identity. Lou feels if she had only known her mother better, she would know herself, as well as friendship and mental health.
5: Our last one. So we've got YA and we've got Heavy Fantasy, which, as you'll know, is not my strongest suit, but we sell a lot of this in the store. And there's so much wonderful young adult fantasy out there that does deal with identity, friendship mental health, all of the things that this book talks about and has that sort of fantasy adventure element. So I would suggest looking at Renegades by Marissa Meyer, Ember in the Ashes by Saba Tahir, Lee Bardugo's Especially Shadow and Bone. The Extraordinaries by TJ Clune. depending on the tone, this one could be a really good one. This has a neurodivergent, at least one neurodivergent character. I know there's a character with ADHD, so the synesthesia might, there might be some similarity there. And I would look to it Plain Bad Heroines by Emily Danforth and Sarah Gailey and see if any of their books feel like a, a fit. For this one, I would think it depends on sort of the tone and and the feel, but all of those would be good places to start
2: amazing emily as per usual my to be read pile has grown exponentially the tj clune has been on my list I, I have it i just haven't gotten to it because i have to read a lot for the podcast but that is an author i'd love to interview because um, I, I loved the house in the cerulean sea yeah. oh we just can't we can't keep it in stock people love it so yeah much. so so good all right so that's it for for today's comps remember if you would like to ask for comps please check out our website the There is a link there where you call in, give as much information as possible, and we'll do our best to answer those for you. Emily, thanks again for joining us.
5: Thank you, Bianca. Always a pleasure.
2: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
0: Here's the thing ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues. But for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access. You can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about, and you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com/course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
0: ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues. But for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and -and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is